0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at tiaa.org/promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. I've got this really good friend, Erin, who always wanted to be a doctor, as long as I have known her, and it's been a really long time. I met her in college, where she was always knee-deep in organic chemistry books. Erin went to med school, and then she did her residency, and she spent years working as an ER doc. In fact, she's still doing it. But recently, Erin's come to a realization. It's been building for a long time, but the pandemic definitely exacerbated it. She doesn't like her job. In fact, Erin doesn't wanna practice medicine at all. She doesn't even know exactly what she wants to do, but just not that. So what do you do when you get to the middle of your career and you decide you need a change? Maybe you're lucky enough to know what you want to do. More likely, like Erin, You know what you don't want to do. Today, we're going to talk about how you reinvent yourself. Our guest is Herminia Ibarra. She's a professor of organizational behavior at London Business School. Herminia has been thinking and teaching about making these kinds of transitions for decades. And she has just released an updated version of a book that first published 20 years ago. It's called Working Identity, Unconventional Strategies for Reinventing Your Career. Herminia will help us better understand the connection between our work identity and our very ability to change. She'll push us to rethink what it means to network and who we should be networking with. And she'll give us practical tips for how to expand our imagination as we think of those next steps and to move toward change even before we know exactly what we want to do. Here's Herminia.
1: The thing that really hit me over the head when I was doing the study for working identity is exactly what you said. People know what they don't want anymore, what doesn't suit them anymore. But what keeps them from getting started is that they don't know mostly what they want to do instead. And so they don't know where to start. What's the method? And what's really important to know is that this is a discovery process, it's not a change from A to B, and it's not a leap. It's a discovery process that you have to embark on from wherever you are. If you have a clearer idea about what you want, then you have a better sense of how to network, how to get some experience. If you don't, you have to start by, first of all, getting what I call getting out of the house, which is (laughs) getting outside of your usual circle, outside of your colleagues at work, go to something that attracts you, a conference, a book club, start getting out talking to people about what they do, following your nose, seeing what interests you, volunteer for something. But it really is about bumping up against ideas at the very beginning. When we're talking about career change. We're talking about moving to something that's completely different than what you used to do. But you can't do that if you don't have the skills, if you don't have some experience, if you don't have vocabulary. That's why in the best of all possible cases, The people for whom this was smoothest, even though it was still complicated and confusing and tricky, they started something on the side out of an interest. Sometimes it was never meant to be a new career. It was just a hobby or some kind of passion. And over time, it grows into something that becomes viable as a next career. That's the ideal way.
0: I I mean, that seems like the ideal way because there's safety in that, right? Like you maintain your income, and you maintain your identity while exploring
1: something else. It seems great. It's still tough when you're going through it. I don't know why. What popped into my mind was someone I knew. I lived in Paris for a long time. She had worked in the business world as a manager, and but her passion was in gemology and jewelry. And she started a, a very high-end kind of gallery for jewelry for very artisanal jewelers I think she did double duty for at least eight years. Her passion, her next career, was her moonlighting gig for a very long time. I
0: want to just pause here and note how hard that is, how much work is involved in essentially a side project or essentially working two jobs at the same time for eight years That's not nothing. And I think, as I think about that work, a lot of us are willing to do that work if we know that it's going to end up in a career in gemology. Is that what the field is? Gemology? I think I said it
1: right. I'm not even sure.
0: (laughs) I mean, uh, I I love the fact that it is um, so unusual to me that I don't even know how to say it on the air. But if I knew that it was going to work out, I would do it, right? Um, But a lot of us, We feel like we're running in circles, working really hard, and we don't know that we're working smartly, right? What is the difference between working hard and working smartly, intelligently, when you're thinking about a career change?
1: the key of it is to be very aware about how you spend your time and to be very proactive and intentional about how you design your job so that you're investing the best of your time and energy on the things that matter most relative to the impact you're having and what else you want to get done. You know, most of the time we just get up and we go head into the inbox without a sense of strategy. What's going to give me the biggest payoff for the time that I'm spending? But, you know, I, when it comes to career change, i found that it's really chicken egg. That is, once you start getting a whiff of this thing that's interesting, you get really creative about making time for it because you want to do it. It's more of a pull rather than a push.
0: I love thinking about it that way. And wrapped up in that is this idea of how you think of yourself. And you, you talk about this in the book, this idea of your working identity.
1: Yeah, so that's that's really the crux of it, is because what we do becomes who we are, even when we don't want it to. Because if you think about it, what is identity? In many ways, it is what you habitually do, the company you keep, the story you tell about how you got there. And so even if it is unsatisfying or even aversive, it's very hard to... um extricate yourself from all of that because it's it's part of a whole. It's also how you present yourself to the rest of the world in your off time. And so for some people, there is a real need to kind of uh, decompress. Now, <laughs> for better or worse, today lots of people are getting time to decompress because layoffs have been massive. Yeah, But it does help to have a bit of a separation. And once you're kind of outside that, you start to see a little bit more clearly But it helps a lot to have something to compare it to. And that's, you know, the whole point of working identity is how do you experiment yourself into a new career? You have something to compare it to. Here's how I feel. At work today in my teams, in the groups. I don't want to socialize with them. Here's how I feel in this other group. We go out for drinks after work and it's so much fun or after the project and it just feels so much a part of who I am. You feel it in your gut yep. and it makes you search a little bit further. It makes you invest a little bit further and that's often how the process works.
0: You know, you said earlier, I just want to repeat it because it, it feels like the theme of our conversation today. What we do becomes who. Who we are, mm. even if we don't want it to. Mm. And there is this tension when we think about identity between introspection, like thinking about who we are, and action, acting out who we are. And you have a real strong point of view about how identity is shaped here, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. And my point is that you cannot think yourself into a new way of being and you can't think yourself into a new career because so much of who we are is tied up in what we do on a daily basis. It's not that reflection isn't helpful. But it's not helpful to reflect on the past when the past doesn't contain any of the possibilities that are your future. What I find helps people most is to try some new and different things, to connect to new and different people, and then reflect on that. What am I learning in this process? And I what I tend to say is if you can self-reflect out loud, that is, Talk to somebody else about how you're making sense of it all, about how you're seeing yourself, maybe about how that's changing. Because when you talk about it with somebody, they push you, they challenge you. You have to articulate it. Sometimes you say stuff and you know, no, that's wrong. That's not it. Or you say something and it really feels right. Yeah. So it's a much more active kind of reflection.
0: You also speak about the importance of the people that you choose to talk to. Our closest friends and the colleagues who know us best in the context of our work, those are the wrong people to be talking to here,
1: right? They are. They are. And it's not that they mean ill. <laughs> but there's a couple of things. First of all, they're often invested in who we've been. Uh, sometimes it's threatening for us to move on. Sometimes it feels a bit scary. You know, you've been an accountant all your life. They don't see you as a kind of a... I don't know, hipster entrepreneur, they just can't see it that way. Whereas somebody who doesn't know you thinks, why not? Yeah. And, and just the other thing is they inhabit the same social circles as you do. That's the whole theory of the strength of weak ties. We know that weak ties, the people we don't know so well or don't see very frequently, are often the key to our next jobs and our next roles. And it's not because they don't know us. It's because the fact that we don't see them often means that they're in different circles. They're in different companies, in different industries, doing different things. And so they have a different perspective that they can bring to us. The people we know well, they know the same things we do. Yes. And so you exhaust the list of possibilities very quickly. That
0: is so true. Um, But it takes a certain chutzpah to reach out for help to the people that we
1: don't know as well. Do you have any... So there's a trick, and this is something that I've discovered more recently, and it's something that I've added into the new version of working identity, because that's absolutely true. The hook is, or the trick is, we know lots of people that we've lost track of, that we've known, that we've worked with in the past, but they've moved on, they've gone somewhere else, and we've lost track of them. We haven't seen them for a few years. These are called your dormant ties, your dormant ties, your latent network, people that you're not actually interacting with. One of the things I have my students do all the time now as a result of the research I've seen is I ask them, think of three or four people who you've lost track of but that you knew and who might offer an interesting input into a problem you're working with or some of your ideas for your next career. Email them, reach out, ask them for a coffee, for an exchange, for a phone call. And what the research has shown is that what you get back from these dormant ties is more novel and more useful than what you get from the usual suspects. And again, it's because they're in different circles. So they're gonna have a different perspective. They'll have seen different things. That's an easier place to get started if the networking seems scary. Yeah. You gotta get your feet wet, reach out to people you've lost track of, but who know most of them say, Oh, Herminia, fantastic. Great to hear from you. have you been? And it is it is absolutely true that
0: whatever you're afraid will happen, what usually happens when you reach out to someone they haven't heard from in a while or that haven't heard from you in a while is that they're really happy to hear from you. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be right back with more from Herminia Ibarra. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you
1: want to hear more of Zach Beret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
0: And we're back. Today's conversation goes deep on the connections between how we think about our work identities and how we can make big changes. Herminia talks about three periods within any career shift. She calls them build, pivot and leverage. I asked her to walk us through these stages. Once again, here's London Business School professor, Herminia Ibarra.
1: So build is you are a novice. You're a novice, you're getting just started out. Most of the time we associate that with young people, uh, but when we're trying to move into something very, very different, it is a pivot. You're building new expertise, you're building new networks, you're building new skills, you're building new vocabulary. And you are most often willing to start lower to be a novice in order in order to do that. Now, most of the time what I have focused on is the pivot and the and the leverage. Sure. Although when you pivot to something pretty different in later mid-career, right. it feels like a build although part of the trick is figuring out how to leverage what you've done in the past and apply it in a very different context.
0: To sort of review everything that you have done through a new lens to understand where you were perhaps subconsciously building already for the pivot that you're taking on.
1: Yes, or building some less tangible skills, more Mm. broadly applicable things. It's an aspect of pivot and build. I'll give you another example. Uh, Someone who I interviewed who had worked as a money manager way into mid-career wasn't particularly happy with that. It paid the bills. Mm -hmm. Uh, She had thought that what she really wanted to do was something in the interior design space and had taken courses. It was really kind of like her passion and hobby, but the more she dabbled in it, the more she realized that she was never going to make a living out of that. There's just too much competition, not enough distinctive advantage for her. Right. And uh, in her case, and this is kind of unusual, something did kind of come in somewhat out of the blue. One of her clients, uh, who had an independent film company, asked her to run it from the financial point of view. And this was a pivot to the film industry for her, but a pivot in which she was really building on her past skills in finance and also the relationship that she had built with this person over the years in a very different capacity. So it's both a pivot and a building or leveraging of the past skills that she had. Oftentimes, it's it's a little bit of each. Yeah. Where I talk about leverage, I see more leverage... A little bit in later career, I don't know if you see the same, but a lot of people move into roles in advisory and in coaching in the industries in which they've worked. I mean, so many people, there's so much demand for this, right? Right, or teaching. They are adding a skill that they need to build, but they're also leveraging everything they've done before, all of that past experience, in order to be able to provide something distinctive to their to their clients, so part of what I'm saying is these three things actually get quite mixed up when we're coming to it with a, some degree of experience in mid-career. I think one of the challenges of making a mid-career switch
0: and something that people resist is the idea that you're going to have to be a novice again if you take up in an yeah. entirely new industry. There will be people much younger than you who have made different choices earlier in their lives, who are far ahead of you, and. That can be a hard pill to swallow. Why? Why can?
1: Why is that so hard? You know, I think our sense of identity is also caught up in status. I think that's part of it. The other part is this kind of um, sunk costs. Yeah. If I can't use what I've invested in for so long, it's like throwing it away. I had somebody who was a brain surgeon. I forgot how many years he trained as a doctor, yeah. and he really didn't like being a brain surgeon. He wanted to be a policy wonk in healthcare. <laughs> but It was just such a big investment to throw away. He did a mid-career program to kind of make the switch, but he couldn't do it. He went back to medicine and then actually took much smaller steps, smaller steps first into management, into different areas, until he was finally able to get more involved in the kind of big picture thinking about the healthcare world side of things. I actually want to go deep on that example a
0: second because it's a great example. So... A brain surgeon, obviously, is somebody who spends so much time before they ever get to the operating room training to be able to do that thing. And then you get there and you don't like it. I I can't imagine. Like, that'd be awful. Um, And then he tried to make a big leap. Why didn't that first big leap work?
1: Because all his job offers <laughs> were <laughs> in the same thing he was doing already. And this right. is a thing I see a lot too. There's a lot of one-year mid-career programs. I teach mid-careers also who, who stop working for a year as a way of making that pivot. It's, it's never enough. Career changes take at least three years one way, in one way, shape, or form. And so oftentimes you have to take baby steps towards, um, yeah. you know, for some people it makes a lot more sense to go back to what they were doing get the salary that's commensurate with where they are, but be a lot smarter about how they're doing the job, carve out a little bit of time, take some courses, keep the networking, maybe do some side advisory, volunteer, and eventually work their way. In his case, in in this person's case, he moved into a, a management job at a hospital. He moved to a surgeon capacity at a place where he knew there was some potential to do senior management. Yep. And then via his extracurricular activities, he built the network and satisfied the itch around the more intellectual policy issues around healthcare. And I I don't know what step he's gone through next. The last time I spoke to him was a couple of years ago, but he was really able to move into something much closer, but it had taken him a number of years and steps. You know, there's also the getting kids through college part of things. You know, there was a time when he was not willing to go down the pay scale. I, I don't think the move to management had such a big dent Uh, But there were a lot of factors coming into play into these decisions as they do at mid-career. It's not just about the work. It's about the whole life. Well, I'm really glad you brought up pay because
0: a lot of times things that we would prefer do in life involve more risk and sometimes pay not nearly as well. Think about that documentary filmmaker you spoke about earlier. Um, How do you – Well, she's rethinking
1: it. (laughs) She's rethinking it. (laughs)
0: Well, but how how do you counsel people to think about pay? And pay is both related to getting our kids through college, yes, and also related to identity and status and how we think of ourselves.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, look, I'm not going to minimize pay. It's really important. But there's also a flip side. Like a lot of people fantasize. If only I could be a full-time writer, I'd be so happy, but I can't because I can't give up the paycheck. But in fact, they'd be miserable or they can't do it. And so this is where experimenting comes into play because I've seen a lot of people take their passion thing and do it over the course of a sabbatical or try to do it more seriously on a daily basis, right? And decide this is not for me. This is a hobby. This is an interest. This is not a career. So be careful with this. I'd love to do it, but I can't afford it. You know, nonprofits, it's another thing. A lot of people think I'll find my purpose working for a nonprofit. They go and it drives them crazy. And so, check it out as closely as you can. And don't tell me you'd, you'd be a writer if you could, if you never take out the pen or the laptop, if you can't squeeze out a couple of hours a week to dabble in it. You've got to dabble. So that's that's
0: one thing. Herminia, I love that example, because I am in many ways that person. I have this great job that I actually love quite a bit, right? I host this podcast. I work at this tech company, but I always said, "Ugh, I just, if only I could write a book, but you know, I've got kids. I support my family. So then during the pandemic, I had a very enterprising agent who sold a book on my behalf and I finally had the opportunity to write it. Loved writing it, had a great experience, hated selling it and promoting it. The book did fairly well and people keep saying to me, well, Are you going to write another book? And my answer is, oh, nope, I learned that was just a passion. I'm going back to my day job. I love my day job. It turns out I didn't really like doing that thing that I spent my whole life thinking I wanted to do.
1: I've seen so many instances of that. I've seen so many instances of that. Yeah. So there you go. I might have to use you as an example in the future. <laughs>
0: well, so, so, anyways, that was the first thing. And you started to say the other thing, I think, related to pay. The
1: other thing is, and th- this is this is a complicated thing. Uh, and I've seen it be very complicated in the United States. So, in England or in Europe, where I lived before, healthcare is not tied to your job. And so that's one less thing to keep you handcuffed to a job that you don't love. And so one of the things that I have seen a lot of people do, usually from mid-career onwards, when they are very interested in a line of work that may not pay enough to pay the bills, is they go plural. They go to a portfolio. Mm -hmm. And so they do some things that they do really well in their sleep on an advisory basis, perhaps, or some projects to make some money, and they keep some of their time to keep developing that more creative thing that may or may not pan out. And there's lots of ways in which they do it, sometimes just fully independently. But in the United States, it's a little bit more complicated. We have you know, lots of tech contractors who manage to work in this way, but we're a lot more hesitant to play with this on the creative side because of the hit that we take to a very important benefit.
0: Yeah, that is so true. That is so true. You know, you finish your book, which is a wonderful pragmatic guide, but you finish your book in part by asking that we really understand and know ourselves um, and know what might be possible, dream up what might be possible for us to become. Is this process of changing one's career a process that's ever concluded, or is it a state of living that you're asking curious professionals to step into?
1: Yeah. Okay. So if we just knew now what it meant to be fully ourselves, then all of this would be easy. But in fact, fully knowing yourself is not an input. It's the prize at the end of the journey. It's what you get as a result of all of this, trying and dabbling and searching and talking and telling your story and so on. Um, but to the end of your question, one of the things that I see today, and it could be just all the turbulence today, you know, the whole AI revolution, the whole you know corporate disruption, all of these different things. Um, it, it feels like more of a of an ongoing evolution yeah. because how because of how changing the world of work is. Yeah. And that that's kind of scary. You know, there's it's a, it's 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 great in that it suggests continuing learning and evolution and adaptation. But it also sounds a little exhausting. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think it would feel less exhausting if we could count on the fact that our basic needs would be met independent of having to pursue a career. It becomes exhausting yeah. when you factor in the risk that we all take in in making any change.
1: Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, at the same time, how many people do you know? And certainly I have interviewed people who for sure have their basic needs taken care of. Yeah. But they still struggle because what we want meaning and challenge and passion is back to the identity thing. It's not just, of course, it is easier. Yeah. It's less stressful. But it's back to that sense of meaning. People, you know, the term I always hear is I want to be relevant. I want to be relevant. We want to be relevant. What does that mean? We want people to reach out and ask us for advice and your opinion. What do you think? And get invited to dinner. And, you know, all of these different things be kind of in the loop in terms of what's happening in the world. So it's not just the money. It's really... The meaning and the relevance and the having a place. If I, you know, if I can have bragging rights for one second, I was really the first person to say, you can't reflect your way into this. You have to fast prototype yourself, be multitudes, be all of your possible selves. People are so stuck on feeling sheepish, if not anxious about the fact that they don't know who they want to be, that they don't have that sense of that core inner self. And... When I give them permission to be inconsistent, divergent, and multiple, you know, think about all your possible selves, just brainstorm it. It doesn't matter. Be creative. Think of lots of possibilities. The more, the better. It's so freeing. And then you can try one or two, and if that one doesn't work, it doesn't matter. It's really unshackling ourselves from this idea that we've got this one thing we're meant to be.
0: That was Herminia Ibarra. Check out her newly updated book, Working Identity, Unconventional Strategies for Reinventing Your Career. Herminia's biggest idea here is that our work identity is something we can change. And when we begin to shift how we think about ourselves, we also change the possibilities before us for doing work that inspires. Now, as an early step in this process, she pushes us to network with what she calls loose ties. These aren't our closest friends or our family. Those people know us too well as we are to help us imagine who we might become. Instead, focus on people we may have lost track of. Grab a coffee with that person you worked with at an earlier job, collect some ideas. I'll also remember what Herminia has to say about pay, that it's important, of course, but pay often becomes an excuse for people to avoid making a change when the real reason they're avoiding it is something else entirely. I really like this idea that she has for a portfolio approach to our work. Take my friend Erin. You know, she may be an unhappy ER doctor, but she's lately become very invested in her kids' elementary school education. So maybe she doesn't have to quit being an ER doctor entirely. Maybe she can simply take fewer shifts and also start exploring teaching. So let's talk about this some more at office hours this week. We will go into how we all consider substantial career changes. If you have done it or plan to do it, come share your experience with us this Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. We'll go live from the LinkedIn news page. If you have trouble finding us, email us at at LinkedIn.com and we'll send you a link. We really love hearing from you. So if you have anything to tell us about how this episode landed for you, Get in touch at Hello Monday at LinkedIn.com. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer is always around to help us think about big changes. Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening.
1: I have a jacket, but I think it's better to look informal, don't you think? I think so. Um, In fact,
0: fact, I think we may be wearing the same thing. So uh, you've... You have hit the jackpot. You've worn exactly the right outfit for the podcast.
1: Good, good, good. There was a uniform.